Well, good morning. I, uh, my name is Dan Vaccaro. If you did not know, I am the oldest son of Greg and Meg Vaccaro. Uh, and I'm not around very much because my family and I, my wife and I, are missionaries in Kenya, uh, where we live with the rest of our family. My wife is very sad. She's not here this morning. I am just here with my oldest daughter, Nora. The rest of my kids are not feeling well. So my wife is home with all of them. Uh, I grew up in this church, and I, as I look around, I see a lot of faces I don't know, but I see a lot of faces that I do know, and some faces that have known me since I was probably in diapers. Uh, many of you might remember eight years ago when I looked like that. This was 2015. Miranda and I had no kids, and we answered the call of God to move overseas to Malawi, which is a country in Africa, not the country where we live now. We live in Kenya now, but this is what we looked like then. And you know, what really blesses me is as I look around, I see faces and people that have been supporting our family since this photo was taken, who have been faithfully praying for me and my family since then, eight years ago. We don't take that lightly. That is a huge blessing to us. We look a little bit different now. Uh, This is my family now. We've grown a little bit. There's a lot more gray hair. Miranda points out to me very often that she has six gray hairs. Uh, So you'll notice that you can see zero of them in that picture. But our family's grown. We now have four kids, Nora, Ezra, Sophie, and Hazel. Uh, And I have one picture that will tell you everything that you need to know about my four kids. And it's right here. Now, on the surface, you're looking at that and you're thinking, oh, that's really cute. This was taken right after Hazel was born. And all of my kids are sitting there looking lovingly at their sister. But as I zoom in just a little bit, you might notice something interesting about this picture. And I'll zoom in one more time. This is my daughter, Sophie, trying to lick Hazel's head. (laughs) I don't know why. And what's weirder is this is actually something that, like, the Vaccaro kids are known for. They are all known for being lickers. Like, kids on campus where we live know my kids as, like, oh, they lick people. That's not a reputation that anybody wants to have. It's not a reputation I want for my kids. But they do. All of them, as they have, I mean, they are starting to grow out of it. My older kids no longer lick people. But my younger two definitely do. It's weird. I don't get it. Uh, But that pretty much tells you all you need to know about my family is, uh, I can't say we, like, collectively lick people. um, But they do. As I mentioned, we are missionaries in Kenya. My wife and I work at a school called Rift Valley Academy. It's a boarding school in Kenya, and it's a boarding school for missionary kids. So their parents work somewhere on the continent of Africa, and for a variety of different reasons, they send their kids uh, to school with us. So RVA, Rift Valley Academy, started in 1906. So it's been around a long time. Uh, We have about 500 or so students Uh, About 350 of them or so are boarding. The rest are kids like mine, whose parents work there. Um, There's a lot of pictures up there. You won't be able to see all of them very well, which is on purpose because if you look to your left, my right, there is a table right over there, and it has two photo albums that my wife spent a long time creating. So do her a favor and go look at them. There's lots of great pictures in there that will tell you a little bit more about what our life looks like, uh, and it gives a good visual of what my kids experience, what we experience, where we live, what we do. Um, That is in the back over there on your way out. 
Now, these students that come and live with us, they live at school for three months at a time. So we have three terms a year, and each term is about 12 weeks long. And while they're at school, we are everything. We are teachers, we are dorm parents, we're coaches, we're mentors. The staff, we fill in all of their needs because their parents might be living somewhere completely different, like the Congo, and they're coming to school in Kenya as a seventh grader. That is really, really young. Uh, yeah, that's all I'm going to tell you for right now. And some of you are thinking, wait, that's it? That's all you're going to tell us about what you do? I promise I will tell you more. Uh, and if I forget, you can remind me after or find Nora. She would love to tell you stories about all sorts of crazy things that happen to us that don't typically happen here. You can ask Nora about the time uh, monkeys came into her house and pooped everywhere. That's one of her favorite stories. I wish that my wife was here because you could ask her, and it's actually probably better that she's not here because I can tell this story. You can ask her about the time that a monkey tried to come in the window when she was in labor with Sophie. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories. It's probably not one of her favorite stories, but I thought it was really funny. Uh, she did not think it was quite as funny as I did. Uh, but, you know, that's something that's a little bit unique. As we tell people, we're back in the States for a little while, and as we tell people that we're missionaries, one of the, the biggest questions that people have is, how did you get started in that? Like, where did that come from? Has this always been a dream of yours? And I usually answer, no, it was not. Uh, it, I'm going to sum up, I don't know how many years of history, very quickly. So buckle up and do your best to pay attention. Uh, it was back in my freshman year of college. My friend Micah comes bounding into my room. I am a short, rather slim kind of guy. Micah is like the exact opposite. He's big, he's large, he's even louder than I am. And he comes busting in my room. Dan! You're coming to Uganda with me this summer. And I was like, I don't know where that is, and I'll pass. <laughs> but Micah, God bless him, is very persistent. And he kept talking to me and talking to me and talking to me until finally I just wanted him to leave. So I said, fine, Micah, I'll pray about it. Go away. And as I prayed about it, God made very clear to me, Dan, it's a couple of weeks this summer. You should go. I was like, all right. So I went. And man, was my life changed. The problem was, I came back to school, I just came back to the States, and I was super excited about missions. I was really excited about living overseas. I was like, all right, this is what I want to do. I, the way I would describe it, it was like a pilot light at that point in my life. Now, if you know anything about stoves, pilot lights are always on. And sometimes the gas gets turned up, and the flames get a little bigger, but sometimes the gas gets turned down, sometimes all the way off, but the pilot light is always on. That's what missions was in my life. It was this pilot light that was kind of always on in the back of my mind. At the moment when I came back, the gas was all the way up, and I was ready to go. The problem was, I was still in college, and I was not very excited about it. I was like, I got to leave. I got to get out of here. So, I, the midway through, I think it was my sophomore year, I had a conversation with my dad. And if you know anything about my dad, he's very data-driven. And if you know anything about me and my dad and the way we relate, Arguing is like a love language for us. So I approached him and I had all of my reasons and I was ready for the argument of like, this is why I want to do this. Here's why I think I should. And also I'm an adult now, so you can't tell me no. And all the things to my dad's eternal credit. I said, dad, I think I'm going to drop out of school. He just looks me square in the eye and goes, okay. And so immediately I'm like, well, now I don't want to. Now I'm going to stay in school. And you know, it's a really good thing I did because it was that next year that Miranda and I started dating. We got married and it was the best decision I have ever made. 
Uh, so I can't say it worked every time, but the reverse psychology 100% worked on me. <laughs> Fast forward a few years, we had an opportunity, as that first picture showed, to move to Malawi. And we did. It was very sudden. It was very last minute. And we decided, you know what? We're young. We don't own really anything. And we have no kids. We don't have like career jobs that were like, hey, I have worked really hard to move up in this ladder. So we sold a couple things, moved the rest of my parents' attic, and jumped on a plane. And we lived in Malawi for three years. And then when God was making it clear that it was time to leave Malawi, uh, he was also making it clear that it wasn't time to leave the mission field. So we moved to Kenya. And we have been there ever since. We got to Kenya in 2019, and if you remember anything about the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020, the entire world turned upside down. And so we find ourselves in Kenya. At the time, we were living in a dorm with no students. All the students got shipped home because of COVID. So I'm teaching online, which is nobody's favorite thing. We have no dorm with us. And this is what made it really interesting. The borders of Kenya had long since closed. You couldn't get out. And my sister was getting married. She was getting married that August. We, the, one of the prices that we pay in living overseas is we miss a lot of things. We miss a lot of family events. We've missed high school graduations and college graduations and different funerals and even weddings, but never like an immediate family wedding. And we were really wrestling. What, what do we do? We have to make it. How are we going to make it? We were looking into like, what if we drove and drove across the border into Uganda. Could we fly out of there? You can't. You couldn't get out of the borders. And we were really, really struggling because this would have been this, the first major event that we had missed. And so we were laying in bed one night just thinking, is this worth it? Is what we do worth it if we have to miss this? And in answering the title of my message, if you saw that first slide, was Why Missions? And we were trying to answer that question by asking a different question. Is it worth it? Is living here worth it? What we realized, though, is that we were asking the wrong question. That wasn't the right question to be asking. So this morning, as we take a look at why missions, why does the church, why do Christians, why do we, the Vaccaro family, do missions, I want you to just keep this question in the back of your minds. Why? Why are we doing this? Our main passage this morning is going to be Revelation chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me. You can pull out your phone and clickety-click-click and get all the way there. I'm going to have it up on the screen. It's going to be in the NIV. You can follow along in that version or any other version. But I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. And it says this. This is Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now on the surface, you might look at that passage and say, what? 
This is what you're going to preach on when you're talking about missions? Yeah, I am. And I hope you get as excited as I am as we look at it together. So the first thing that we see as we open this passage is God is holy. He's sitting on his throne. I am not a huge royals fan. However, I did look at pictures from the coronation yesterday. If you didn't know, King Charles is now King Charles. He was already King Charles, but now he's like officially King Charles. Man, those pictures are fascinating. I, I commented to Miranda, said, wow, there's a lot of like really weird outfits going on here. And every picture would be like, this is the outfit that they wore in 1742 at the last coronation, and they've worn it ever since. I'm like, have they washed it? I mean, that's like 270 years old. And you know, it was, it was interesting to me as I see this happen, and, and Charles is sitting on this big throne, and they put this crown on him. Wow, they take it very seriously. He is very important sitting on this throne of the whole commonwealth. How much more important is God sitting on this throne, right? How interesting is that to think about? God, there I saw in the right hand of him who is sitting on the throne. Everyone that was coming up to the throne yesterday was bowing and paying homage to King Charles. And everyone who is before this throne is singing praises forever and ever before the throne of God. God is sitting on his throne over all of the earth. And in his hand, he has a scroll. And the scroll is his plan to restore all of creation. What was broken at the fall, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, is going to be restored one day. And this is the plan. God is holding it in his hand. But there's a problem. Mankind has a problem. This plan of God's cannot be enacted. It cannot be started until someone who is worthy to open the scroll has opened it. And so you have this powerful angel. I love how John describes him. Powerful angel cries out in a loud voice. Who is worthy? Just imagine that moment. You have this powerful angel crying out, who is worthy? Clearly not the powerful angel. Who is qualified to carry out God's plan? And in verse three, it goes on. No one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth. All of heaven is silent. This angel is crying out, asking this question, and the angels have no answer for him. The prophets have no answer for him. Moses and Elijah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, they are all there and none of them have an answer. None of them are worthy. And it says the earth is silent and under the earth because up until this point in all of human history, there was no man, there was no woman, there was no creature who had been holy. There is no one that was able to answer this question. Who is worthy. And John's response is that he weeps. He says, I wept and I wept. John weeps because he knows that without someone to enact this plan, without someone who is able to open the scroll, that sin and sickness and death and pain would continue forever. That there would be no end. Without God's plan for redemption, Suffering would continue for all eternity. John's tears are the tears of all of God's people. 
hoping and waiting and longing for the day when pain will end, when there will be no more tears. But without someone to open the scroll, mankind is doomed to this existence that we have forever. This is the best that it would get. But God has a solution. God does not leave us in that place. Behold the Lion of Judah. And what I should have written is, Behold the Lion of Judah is victorious. Are there seven better words than those? Behold the Lion of Judah is victorious. This is echoing what Jesus himself says in the book of John. Take heart, I have overcome the world. This Lion of Judah has been victorious. And this is where everything changes. Now, what's interesting to me is you have this elder who approaches John, the writer of the book of Revelation, says, behold the lion. Now, maybe this isn't as uh, not appropriate. It means a little bit more to me, I think, than maybe it does to some of you. If someone told me, hey, Dan, look, a lion, I would be very scared because there's a high probability that there could be a lion. Lions don't live like right around where we are, but fairly close. We have a leopard that lives like not far at all and you can hear hyena at night. And if someone told me, hey, look, a lion, I'm probably not looking, truthfully. I'm probably just running. (laughs) But if I did look, I would expect to see a lion. But when John looks, he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. This is like the exact opposite. Hey, look, a mighty predator, and you turn, and there's a little lamb that looks like it's been killed. That's not what you would expect. Why a lamb? If you remember all the way back in the book of Exodus, the Israelites are in bondage in Egypt, and God sends plagues on Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And the final plague, there's an angel that's going to come and kill every firstborn, both of the Hebrew people and the Egyptian people. But God gives his people a way out. And he says, here's what's going to save you. Take a spotless lamb and kill it and spread its blood on your doors. And when the angel sees that, he will pass over. So we get the word Passover. Fast forward, remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus the first time he saw him. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lion of Judah is victorious because he is the Lamb who was slain. And it's both of these that describe Jesus. This is Jesus. And in verse 9, when Jesus comes and he takes the scrolls, it says, The elders and the creatures, they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God, Persons from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We do missions because he is worthy. Because he is worthy to take the scroll, to enact this plan. And not only that, but it's because he was slain that he has been able to purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is why missions exists is this right here. Jesus has given access to salvation to people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. He purchased them with his blood. 
Now, when you read that last word, nation, it, it's, the word is ethne. It's not geopolitical nation like you might think of France or Japan. Um, it's, the, the word ethne is better translated people group. Jesus has given them access to salvation. And then he goes further and he commissions all of us. And he says, go, make disciples of all nations. And again, that word nations is the same. Ethne, make disciples of all people groups. We are meant to go to every people group. Now, there are people groups in the world that are classified as something called unreached. Unreached people groups does not mean unsaved. Unsaved means they don't believe that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for their sins. And that the only way to heaven is through him. That's unsaved. Unreached is something a little bit different. I'll put the technical definition up. Less than 2% of a people group would identify as Christian that there would be no indigenous community of believers with the numbers or the resources to evangelize their people group without outside help. An unreached people group does not know of Christ. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he's done. And they have no one to tell him, tell them about him. It doesn't mean they've never heard the name of Jesus, but they probably know as much about Jesus as we do about Buddha or Confucius. You've heard the name, you recognize the name, you don't know much more than that. There's no church, there's no believers, there is no one to tell them. Someone in an unreached people group could live their entire life without hearing about the hope that we have in Jesus, that there is a lion who is victorious over sin and death and pain. Currently, the the total amount of people groups in the world, 17,432. Total population of the world is about 8 billion people. Of that, the total amount of unreached people groups, 7,402. With a population of 3.28 billion people with no one to tell them of Christ. I can narrow it down. This is a map of Africa. I like this map because it shows just quite how big Africa is. That's the entire United States can fit just in the northern part of Africa. The total population of Africa is 1.6 billion people. And of that, 580 million of them are currently classified as unreached. They have no one to tell them of Christ. That's one out of every three larger than the entire population of the United States. That's as if every single person in the United States had no one to tell them of Jesus Christ. In Kenya, where we live, Kenya is one of the most Christianized nations in all of Africa, and still 10% of Kenya is classified as unreached, which is over 5 million people. That's like four times the population of all of New Hampshire. Five million people just in Kenya have no one to tell them of Christ. God desires, God deserves worship from every people group because he has purchased them with his blood. The goal is that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John Piper famously said, missions exists because worship doesn't. And until God receives worship 
from every tribe and language and people and people group until we make disciples of all nations, the task is not yet done. Now, I want to be clear, this is not, maybe I should say it this way, I do not intend this to be a feel guilty and go type of sermon where now we should all feel guilty and we should all go into missions. No, I don't think everyone is meant to go. I do think everyone is invited to play a part because everyone is called to make disciples. That is not a call for the few. It is a call for the many. I think that looks different based on where God has called you. The point of missions isn't about numbers or efficiency. The the point of missions is obedience, taking the gospel to every tribe and tongue and people and nations. We do missions because he is worthy. Because there is a lion of Judah who is worthy. We do missions because there are people who need to hear. Jesus has purchased them with his blood, but he has commissioned us to go and tell them. We also do missions as a partnership. There's two types of partnership. The first is our partnership at Rift Valley Academy. The, the motto, or the mission statement, I should say, of, of RVA says, Rift Valley Academy exists to educate and disciple students, thus enabling their families to serve. I'm a teacher. I love the beginning of a school year. I love new parent and student orientation. You have all these students who are coming in, super nervous. You have all these parents that are coming in, and every single one of them will tell you the same thing. They all say, I never thought that I would send my kids to boarding school. And if you backtrack that further, most of them would probably say, I never thought that I would be in missions. And yet, here they find themselves obeying the call of God. And because of that, often they are sending their students to a boarding school. Missionaries to the unreached are often in really difficult to get to places. They can be in very remote places, several days journey. There might be, they might be in a place with no English schools. They might be in a place where there's no access for their kids to things like sports or music. There was one family that we knew that they weren't planning on sending their daughter until she was a little bit older, but the village in which they lived in Tanzania, their daughter at 11 was having men in the village ask her dad if they could marry her. So they said, okay, I think this is time. We're going to send you to Rift Valley Academy in Kenya. (laughs) RVA exists as a partnership with these parents. We partner with these parents to enable them to serve where God has called them. And parents tell us all the time, we couldn't do our ministry without RVA. We couldn't do what God has called us to do without you guys. I want to read a few examples of what some of these parents are doing. These are emails that we get uh, from different parents just explaining things of how things are going. These are missionaries in North Africa, and they write this. Ma Aisha simply explained to her how she came to faith, saying, You came and started telling us these stories, but because I'm a Muslim, I didn't believe any of them. But you were stubborn and kept coming back. And as I heard the stories of Jesus, I came to the point where I realized it was true and started to follow him. Missionaries in the Horn of Africa write this. I can say this was the best Christmas I've ever had in Africa. Not because of the celebrations, but because I received a beautiful gift. I am friends with a young soccer player who says he wants to follow Christ. 
He has been reading the Bible faithfully for months now. He wrote to us on December 24th, just last year, saying, my eyes have been opened. I have discovered the truth and he is the truth. He also could understand that our father was allowing him to experience his grace and mercy. He finished saying, now I know that I am his son. Missionaries in Tanzania, we have been praying that Jesus would reveal himself to the many Muslims during this fasting month of Ramadan. Last Sunday, Easter Sunday, this was just a few weeks ago, a local Muslim lady came to our worship service and declared that she wanted to believe in Jesus. For the last week, seven days, she said, she has heard a voice in her dreams telling her to believe in Jesus. Not knowing anything about Jesus or Easter, she decided to come on Resurrection Sunday. We were able to pray with her and she confessed Jesus as Lord. Finally, other missionaries in Tanzania write, after walking around the village, we came upon a man. After some small talk, one of our group asked this man named Rashidi if he would like to receive Christ. Remember, this was in a public place in a totally Islamic village in the middle of nowhere in Tanzania. Several who were sitting next to him suggested that we should not expect him to answer this question as it was sudden and might offend him. But Rashidi answered with these words. I have never been asked this question and have wondered why for many days. I have this friend of mine who claims to be a follower of Jesus, yet he has never asked me this question. Yes, I would like to answer the question and say that I would like to know more about this Jesus. I know nothing. So right there, publicly, in front of a group of people, the gospel message was clearly explained in Kingindo, the local language. And after the presentation, Rashidi was asked if he would like to receive Jesus as his king. His answer was resolutely yes. So we prayed with him to receive Jesus right there. Later, we were able to leave him with a New Testament in his language. It was a very powerful demonstration of the gospel at work in one's life. These are the families that we serve. This is what God is doing all over the continent of Africa. Now, RVA exists for missionary families, but RVA also exists for students. Something unique about missionary kids is they call them third culture kids. So that's a child that has a passport like my kids from the U.S., but they've never really lived in the U.S. For my kids, they live in Kenya, but they're not Kenyan. They don't really fit in in American culture, but they don't really fit in in Kenyan culture completely either. So they call them third culture kids. They're a blend of the two. What's wonderful about the school that we teach at is all of the students are the exact same because all of them are different types of third culture kids. So they are surrounded by other students and other kids that understand them, that get what they're going through because they have been there themselves. So many of our students have a desire and they hunger and they thirst to bring the gospel to the nations, oftentimes just the way their parents do. RVA, Rift Valley Academy, allows them not only to receive an education, but many times helps launch them into global missions. Our roles at RVA have looked different pretty much every year that we've been there. Uh, I'm a teacher. Most of my roles have revolved in some capacity around teaching at some age level. Miranda has served as a student chaplain Uh, We also were dorm parents for a season, so we lived in an elementary girls' dorm with nine fifth and sixth grade girls. Uh, I was not prepared for fifth and sixth grade girls, nor was like four 
And that was my limit of what I understood, was four-year-old girl, not 11-year-old girl. Uh, But we were their parents for 12 weeks at a time. We would do homework help. We would have family devotions. We would tuck them in at night. We would get them snacks. We stood in for their parents. And what's unique about RVA, we're no longer in a dorm, but we still see all of those students. And they'll still stop by our house. Aunt Miranda, do you have any snacks? That's usually what they're after. We have students in class, and we might have those same students on a Tuesday, but then Sunday we have them for Sunday school. Or we might have them after school in sports. Or we might see them in the dorm. Or we might be one of their mentors. We have all of these different interactions with our students, which really allows us to disciple them well. And in all of these roles, we are partnering with parents, enabling their families to serve. The other type of partnership Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 15. And it says this, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is writing to this church in Rome. It's not... Paul planted many churches. He didn't plant this one. This is not a church that he planted. It's not a church he's ever been to before. But he's saying, hey, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. Romans is one of the most complete looks that we have at the gospel of Christ. He reminds them. He spends chapters and chapters reminding them of the gospel, encouraging them in the work they are doing for the gospel. And then he says, hey, I'm going to be passing through. I'm coming your way. And I would like you to assist me on my journey, he says. He invites them to partner with him. I'm going to Spain. I would really love if you could help me get there. The second type of partnership is the partnership of families and churches with us, the Vaccaro family. Our roles at RVA are based completely and entirely on people giving to us monthly and supporting our family financially. Like I said at the beginning, I can look around and I can see people that have been supporting us for years and years. We are so blessed by you. We are so blessed by you. My goal this morning has been to remind us all that he is worthy. He is worth it all. To also encourage you in the gospel that there is a lion who is victorious, but also to invite you to partner with us in what we are doing. Very similar to Paul. So as I close, I want to go back to that original question. Why do we do missions? Why missions? It's not about, is what we do worth it? The question really should be, is he worth it? Is he worthy? And the answer is yes. We do missions because Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of everything. We also do missions because he has purchased people who need to hear what he has done for them. In Romans, earlier in the book, Paul says, how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? There are millions of people without access to the hope that we have in Jesus. Finally, we do missions as a partnership. Missions is a partnership of families and churches and missionaries. We're all working together for the same goal, that Jesus would receive worship 
from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So where does that leave us this morning? Well, we would love to ask you to partner with us, the Vaccaro family. I would love to see you after service. I'll be standing at that table. Come and chat. Come and chat. There's a variety of different things on the table. You're free to take one. But also, I don't want to ignore that there may be some people sitting in here this morning that you're thinking, I actually am feeling really stirred to go. There's that many people that need to hear of Christ. I I want to go and tell them. Man, I would love to chat with you. I would love to help connect you with people, with an organization to fulfill that calling. That If God has put that on your heart, please come and find me. But finally, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I don't get it. He's worthy? What does that even mean? Or maybe you're thinking, I do get it. He is worthy. And this is the first time that it's made sense to you. Please come and find me. There will be a prayer team up here after. Please do not leave here today without talking to someone. Maybe you're sitting here and for the hundredth time you're realizing over and over again that he is worthy, that Jesus Christ is worthy. Please come and talk to someone. Pray with someone on the prayer team. Come find me. I would love to pray with you. I would love to encourage you. This morning, let's declare together that Jesus is worthy. Let's pray together that he would receive worship from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's our goal. Let's pray. Lord, you, you are so good. God, we exalt you this morning. We give you all the glory and all the honor and all of the praise. Because truthfully, God, you are worthy of it. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of our lives, God. There is nothing that we uh, can hold on to that is ours. Lord, it is all yours. Lord, our goal this morning is to lift you high. Lord, as we close, I pray that you would be speaking to hearts even now. Lord, we know that you, uh, when we knock on the door, you are faithful to answer. Yeah, Lord, we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please come and find me at that table. Otherwise, you are dismissed. There is lunch downstairs and there is a prayer team up here. Go. Oh.